Oh Lord, we do cry out to you for your spirit to save us this morning from temptation to sin as we look at your word and we struggle to understand who you are and who we are and how we are to live in this world. Oh Lord, we pray that you would move in us by your spirit, quickening us to help us to keep your statutes with all diligence and godliness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing to look at the life of David and uh, Saul, the life of the Israelites under the leadership of a king. Uh, We have resumed this series as of last week uh, where we saw the anointing of David. This is, of course, the time when the Israelites uh, are living in the land of Israel. They came out under the leadership of Moses, um, wandered in the desert for 40 years and then came into the uh, promised land under the leadership of Joshua. They had a series of judges and after these judges, have passed away, there seems to be this interest in wanting to have a king like the other nations. And that's what we've been seeing. The book of Samuel is really about the establishment of a king over Israel rather than a series of judges. So Samuel the prophet, who has been judging Israel, is handing over the mantle, so to speak, and giving the Israelites what they want, which is a king. And so he gave them Saul, but we studied previously how Saul again and again did not follow God's commands. And so this uh, announcement was made by Samuel to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that he was going to take the kingdom of Israel from Saul and give it to another who would follow God with his heart, that he would be a man after God's own heart. And so last week we saw that this person is David. And David is, of course, the one who was anointed by Samuel. And so God has made a promise to David that he will establish his reign as king. And so we saw last week that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And that was in verse 13. Verse 13, when Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him that is David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel the prophet went to Ramah. And then it's interesting, the very next verse, which in some translations, including the translation that we use here, there's a, uh, there's a title that breaks up those two verses. But it is interesting how they parallel one another. You look in verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David. What do we read then in verse 14? Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. We see this transfer of power as Saul loses the spirit of the Lord, and the spirit of the Lord is given to David to be king. And not only does Saul lose the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit leaves David and uh, leaves Saul, we see that there's this spirit that comes from the Lord that torments Saul. That is in verse 14. It says, An evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, what is this spirit that comes from the Lord? Well, you can see a footnote if you're looking at the NIV that they put that word evil. uh, They've got a little footnote there, letter B is there, and that means you mean to drop down to your margin and look at one of the translator's notes about that particular word, the Hebrew word behind the translation of evil. And you see in verse, uh, you see in the margin there, you follow the little letter B, it says 14, or injurious, that it is an injurious spirit, one that uh, hurts or is harmful uh, to 
the, to the king Saul. And that's the translation that's given in the ESV, is the word harmful is used rather than evil. But this word that is there, the, the Hebrew word behind this, it is a very general word that's often translated bad, evil, disaster, injurious, harmful. It's got a very broad spectrum. And so this word, it raises, as we see this evil spirit coming from the Lord, it raises the question of God's control of evil. I don't think that you can just say, oh, it was injurious or harmful, and so therefore uh, this, this absolves God of having uh, any sort of role in the use of this spirit. No, I think, generally speaking, as most translations show, that this, has, this is an evil spirit. I would say it's probably one of Satan's demons that is being sent by God to torment Saul, or permitted, it would be another way to look at it, to go and torment Saul. And so this raises the question of God's control of evil, God's control of evil. And that's what I want to look at this morning and establish, does God control evil? Does God control evil and suffering and pain that is in this world? And I think from this text, we have to see that as we'll look at other texts in the Bible as well, that God clearly does control everything, including evil spirits. Evil spirits are under God's control as well. And this is one example, but the classic example in the, in the Bible, of course, is from the book of Job. Turn with me to the book of Job, which is found on page 496, 496, where we see that God is clearly in control of Satan himself, not just evil spirits as in demons that are sent by Satan, but Satan himself. Page 496, if you have a church Bible, Job chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 6, this classic text which speaks so clearly about God's control even of Satan. Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then if you continue the chapter, you see that Satan commits all these horrible acts of disaster upon Job. And of course, the book of Job establishes once again that Job was innocent in the way that he was living, but Satan was bringing these evil acts upon him. But you see here in this text that who's in control? It is clearly God. Satan comes before God. Satan is the one who speaks about uh, Job and, uh, and accuses Job of only liking God for what he can get. But Satan needs permission to go and inflict Job and his household with pain and suffering. Satan raises the idea of suffering, but it is God who permits 
Satan to go and inflict that pain. And that's not the only text in the Bible, of course. We've got the passage in 1 Samuel 16 where we see that evil spirit coming from God to Saul. But in Judges chapter 9, verse 23, we read God sent an evil. Uh, that is the same uh, word that is used in 1 Samuel to describe the spirit uh, that is sent from God to Saul. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. So see, there in the book of Judges, uh, that time period just before uh, the time that 1 Samuel is set, uh, we see that an evil spirit was sent from the Lord there uh, between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. And, of course, in the New Testament, we see God's control of evil spirits as well from that passage that we had read for us before from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul himself, what happens to him? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, we read, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. He obviously was the man who was called up to the third heaven. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, we often talk about the thorn in the flesh of Saul. And what is the thorn in the flesh that, say, uh, that, uh, that God gave to Paul? A messenger of Satan. A messenger. That word messenger there is the common Greek word for angel. An angel of Satan was sent to Paul to torment him. To torment him. Just as we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, a evil spirit coming to torment Saul. In the New Testament, we see an evil spirit, a messenger of Satan, coming to torment Paul. So God clearly controls evil spirits. And he doesn't just control evil spirits, he controls evil people. We see again and again in the Bible that God is in control of evil doers even as they do evil. In the book of Genesis, the classic example in the Bible is given to us of Joseph and his brothers. His brothers sell him into slavery and they end up meeting Joseph again uh, when he is king over Egypt. He's the governor down there. And they then get very scared of what Joseph will do to them for their acts of evil, for their uh, desire to destroy him. And what does Joseph say? Does he say, God was somehow powerless in what you were doing, it's okay. No, he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me. Your desire was to harm me by selling me into slavery. But God intended, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God overruled your evil intentions towards me as your brother. Why? To save many lives. Of course, there's a famine in the land and, and Joseph has been elevated to this status in Egypt and has so much grain that he can provide for the Egyptians but also for his own family so that many are saved. So God is in control of everything, including evil people like Joseph's brothers. And then in the New Testament, another classic example and probably one of the greatest examples we have of evil men yet under God's control is those who crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Was that under God's control? Those Jews and Pilate, as they put the Lord Jesus to death? Clearly, yes. And the apostles acknowledge this in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, in their prayer 
to God. They pray, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. So you've got the Jews, you've got the Gentiles, you've got Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles. They were conspiring against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Who's in control of the Jews and the Gentiles as they put Jesus to death? It is God. They did what your power and will had desired beforehand, had decided beforehand should happen. God is in control of evil people. He's in control of Joseph's brothers. He's in control of the Gentiles and Jews as they put Jesus to death. And God is also, when we uh, consider God's control, he's also in control of disasters and the pain and suffering in this world that come upon us from what we would generally consider natural disasters. As we consider the problem of evil and suffering and God's control of it, we don't just consider Satan and his demons, we don't just consider evil men, but we also consider the pain and suffering that come. We read in Amos chapter 3, verse 6, When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And that word disaster, there is the same word that's the Hebrew word that's back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 to describe that spirit that comes from the Lord to Saul. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And the answer is yes. And we see that with the Egyptian plagues back in the Old Testament as well. God was in control of those disasters as they came upon the Egyptians. And then the classic text as well. Sorry, I'm saying every text is a classic here. But uh, in reference to certain, certain uh, topics here, their classic text, Isaiah 45, verse 7, which creates a lot of problems who still read the King James Bibles. If you still read the King James Bible, uh, you would be, some people come up to me sometimes as a pastor and ask, what is this verse in the Bible? Uh, the NIV softens it a bit. It says, Isaiah 45, verse 7, it says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, that word there, create disaster, that's that same Hebrew word that we've been looking at again and again throughout the Old Testament. It's that evil. And so the King James actually translates it as, I create evil. I create evil. The NIV softens it down as, I create disaster. I bring disaster. Looking more at the broad spectrum of the word as a translated word. But the Bible, I think, clearly tells us God's in control of Satan and his demons. God's in control of evil people. God's in control of disaster, pain, and suffering in this world. And this makes sense to us if we understand who God is, who Satan is, who the demons are, and who we are. What's the alternative? Man is in control. Satan's in control of all things. His demons are in control of all things. No, clearly the Bible tells us that God is the God who is over all. He is the one who is supreme. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has complete dominion, is the word that is used of God. He reigns over all. So God controls all things, including evil spirits, evildoers, and pain and suffering. I think it's clear from the Bible that we can accept this. But then that raises another question raises another question. Is God then responsible for evil? Is God responsible for evil? 
And the answer to that is no. The Bible again and again is adamant that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah 6 tells us that's what the angels are proclaiming again and again in the heavens. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. We cannot put responsibility for evil back upon God. So who is responsible for evil? Well, the responsibility for sin, for evil doing, is on the sinner. James 1 verse 13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. 2 Corinthians 11.15 also says about the servants of Satan, their end will be what their actions deserve. They are responsible for their actions and their end will be what their actions deserve. And so Saul, with all his raging that we'll see again and again in the book of 1 Samuel and his actions that we have seen and the despair that he has of losing the throne, it's all of his own making. He is responsible for his sin even as and a spirit has been sent from God to torment him. But another question is then raised. We ask, is God in control of all things, including evil? And the answer is yes. And then, is God responsible for evil then, if he's in control of it? And the answer is no. The next question is, why? Why does God permit evil? And that's the word that we usually look at and we use when we talk about God's control of evil. God actively works in us for righteousness, but when it comes to evil, it's our own evil desires that drag, away, drag us away, as we read in, one, in James. But God permits us to go after that sin that we are desiring. God permits it. He doesn't actively work in us evil, and so then the responsibility is upon us. He can't hold us back or he can let us go and we act upon our evil desires. And I believe that works for Satan as he's there wanting Job to meet disaster. God gives him permission to do so. He doesn't work in Satan to go out and do disaster against Job. No, he permits Satan to do what he already desires. And so the responsibility is, of course, upon Satan for hurting Job. So then why does God permit evil? Why does he permit suffering and pain in this world? Why does he permit Satan to continue doing what he's doing and his evil spirits to continue doing what they're doing? Well, sometimes God answers this question simply by reminding us of who he is and who we are and tells us to stop asking the question. And that's given to us in the book of Job. The book of Job is a classic book on pain and suffering. If you don't know very well, I encourage you to look into it. It's a book of great wisdom. But what is the answer that is given to Job? He, he goes on for almost 40 chapters about what has gone on in his life and the pain that he's felt and he doesn't understand why has God allowed this to happen to him. What's the answer that God gives him at the end of the book? God just reminds him of who he is, who God is, that he is the creator of all things, that he knows all things. And who are you to question me about why I allow pain and suffering in this world or anything else in this world? And Job responds rightly to that revelation from God, that God is God and you are man. And what does Job say at the end of Job? Uh, Job 42 verse 1, 
Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? That's what Job was doing. He's obscuring God's counsel without knowledge. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer. My ears had heard of you, but my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the answer that God gives Job when he asks why. He says, I am God, you are man. And Job responds by saying, I despise myself in light of who you are and repent in dust and ashes. But sometimes God does show us what he is doing with evil and suffering in this world, the way he overrules it, he does reveal to us of what he's up to. And we even see that in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you uh, moved over to the book of Job or somewhere else in the Bible, come back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through to the end of the chapter. And we see here what God is up to by bringing this evil spirit upon Saul. We read in verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed, that's the Holy Spirit, from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And then what do we read? In the following verses, we see that Saul's courtiers are trying to work out what will we do for our king? He's being tormented from the Lord. And what do they do? They source this young shepherd boy and bring him into the court to play music for the king. And who is this shepherd boy? Out of all the Israelites that could have been brought into the court, it is the little boy who was anointed the next king of Israel. If you'd just had the first part of 1 Samuel chapter 16, you'd say, how will this little boy who even his parents and his brothers would have despised as king and thought, can this really be the king? As we see the selection of him, Jesse just doesn't even bring him to the meeting. How is he ever going to be king of Israel? Well, God uses an evil spirit to help establish David's throne. David ends up in the court of King Saul. King Saul is praising David to his courtiers, praising David to his father, Jesse, to David's father, Jesse. <coughs> and so we see that God is using this evil spirit to establish the throne of David and ultimately to establish the throne of who? Jesus Christ. One Samuel 2 Samuel, I think uh, the main point of those books is to establish the throne of Jesus Christ on the throne of David, that Jesus owns the throne of God, even though he is from the line of Judah and from David's house, he is on the rightful, he is a rightful heir of that throne, because you could argue otherwise that he should be from the family of Benjamin, which is where Saul's from. Saul's the first king of Israel. Shouldn't the king be from Benjamin? But no, we see that the rightful heir to the throne is someone from David's house. And David is getting his throne established here, which will then eventually establish the throne of Jesus Christ. What is God doing by sending this evil spirit to Saul? He's establishing the throne of his son, Jesus of Nazareth, many years later. I mean, it's one small step. But it's a step, nevertheless, in that direction. And so we see that the Bible does give us some of the reasons why God overrules evil for 
the sake of his servants and particularly for his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the case for the Lord Jesus and the evil that was done to him even here when he was here on earth. He was crucified by Jews and Gentiles together. But why did God allow that evil to happen? And it was evil that they were doing. They punished an innocent man, clearly. On trial with the Jews, he was innocent. On trial with the Gentiles, he was innocent. They did evil by crucifying Jesus Christ. But what was God doing? He was establishing the throne of his son. By that death, sin was atoned for. Jesus was raised from the dead and now sits at God's right hand and will come one day to judge the living and the dead. God overruled the evil of Jews and Gentiles and Satan entering into Judas for the establishment of his son's throne. And it's the same for us today. Why does God allow evil and suffering in our lives? It's to help establish our place with Jesus on his throne, to establish our salvation. We go in this tension of the now, not yet experience, that we have many of the blessings of the next life now given to us. But there's still a not yet. And so we understand that there is evil and suffering in this world. And those are used by God to continue to establish our place in God's kingdom. That we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so we have that wonderful promise in scripture. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things includes evil. God works all things for the good of those who love him. And so we've got to remember this, that there's a transition of power that is going from one family to another. And God is using evil, he's overruling evil, for the advancement of the family that he has chosen. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 16. There's this transition that's going from David's, uh, from Saul's family to David's family. And evil is wanting to resist any establishment of David's throne. And that's the same for us today. There's Satan's family and there's Christ's family. And there's a transition that's taking place. Every time someone is converted, they're transitioning from the power of Satan to the power of Christ. And Satan doesn't take it lying down. He kicks up a stink. And the world doesn't take it lying down. They kick up a stink. And they have evil desires to try and attack Christ's family, Christ's throne. And they're running amok. But the wonderful thing is, even as they have those evil desires, and God then permits them to fulfill those evil desires, he is in control of them. He's in control of Satan. He's in control of his demons. He's in control of evildoers. He's in control of natural disasters and pain and suffering that comes and overruling them for our good. So what are we to do then? What are we to do? What was David called to do? Well, he was called to wait and patiently trust God, that God would work all things out. And we see that patience as you read the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, that he patiently waits for God to put him on the throne. He doesn't take up a sword against the Lord's anointed and kill Saul. He waits. He trusts God that God will overrule even the evil work of Saul against him, raising the Israelite army to hunt him like a flea in the mountains. God will use that. 
to establish my throne that he has promised to give me. And that's what we're called to do as well. We're meant to simply trust God, even in the midst of pain and suffering that comes our way. Now, what does that look like? I've got an illustration for you this morning that I think is very helpful for us to understand how God uses evil, overrules evil, for his glory. The illustration is one that I've stolen from Edith Schaefer. Edith Schaefer was the wife of Francis Schaefer. Francis Schaefer may be known to you uh, because of his books on apologetics, The Defense of the Christian Faith. He's been very influential to me. His wife was also an author. I'm not sure she's as good an author as Francis, but nonetheless, she wrote a book called The Tapestry. And The Tapestry is basically a, uh, a report of their life and the ministry that they had uh, in Switzerland. And she, gives a, and she calls it the tapestry of the book because she sees that a tapestry is a very good illustration for our lives. If you think of a tapestry, what does one side look like? On one side, you have, if you think of the back side of a tapestry, so on one side you've got the picture, and on the other side you've got the back side, so you've got the front side with the picture, and back side you've got, what have you got on the other side? Well, it looks like a chaotic mess. What do you have on the back side of a tapestry? You have dark threads and light threads crossing, knotting, even piercing one another. You have dark and light threads being stretched and pulled across the tapestry, the back of the tapestry. You have dark and light threads being damaged, frayed and cut on that back side of the tapestry. And if you only look at the back side of the tapestry, then what do you think? You think this, this object that is in front of you is a chaotic mess with no purpose at all. What's the point of this board with all these light and dark threads injuring one another? But if you look on the other side, what do you see? <coughs> you see something very beautiful. You see something that is so pretty because of what's on the back. All those light and dark threads that are tangled amongst one another, they're actually producing something beautiful on the other side. And that's what our lives are like. How so? Well, you have dark threads. You have disasters, you have pain, you have suffering, you have evildoers, you have evil spirits, you have Satan himself. But you also have lighter threads of joy and blessing and righteous people and holy angels and Jesus Christ himself, the most pure and white thread that is available. And both the dark and the light are crossing one another they're knotting one another. They're even piercing each other. And they're being pulled and stretched and frayed and cut. And at times, as we look at this world with all the dark and the light that's going on, we think there's no purpose. It's one big chaotic mess. All the pain and suffering in this world, all the evil doing that is out there, and there's some really shocking things being done around the world. We often live in a little bubble here, and I've recognised that my life, I've experienced very little suffering, very little contact with the evil that is out there. I'm actually just reading a book by Dostoevsky, uh, Brothers Camera Resolve, and these brothers, and they talk to one another, and one's wanting to be a monk, and the other one's trying to talk to him about the problem of evil and suffering, and he's recounting horrible things that Russians have done, Russian aristocrats have done to peasants and their children. And he says, I've got all these little stories about what people have done to children. And the children are the ones that are most shocking, these stories, the way that people could hurt someone so innocent and pure. It's shocking. How could there be a God when this kind of thing is happening? 
And we are in a bit of a bubble, really, about the pain and suffering that is going on in this world. But we see something of it. And we can be tempted to think this is one big chaotic mess. There's no purpose to all the light and dark that is happening in this world. But God promises us that there is a beautiful display that he is creating out of all this dark and light that is mixing with one another on one side, this clash of righteousness and unrighteousness. The designer has a design. And he will receive glory for the beautiful design that he is working on the other side that we often can't see. How does this illustration help us this morning? It helps us to trust in the designer. It helps us to trust him. We can be content even as we experience the pulling and the knotting and the cutting and the fraying of darkness against us. Even if we don't see how God's design is coming out, we can trust that he is making something beautiful, even of the pain and suffering in our lives and the lives of others. And at times we do have the privilege of seeing something of that picture. We see one small part of the other side of the tapestry. We get a glimpse of it, like we do in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We see the establishment of David's throne. We get a little glimpse as to what God is doing by sending that evil spirit to torment Saul. And we get a glimpse of what God is doing with the tapestry. We see King Jesus and his subjects, including us, and his kingdom. And it's a glorious kingdom. We get a little glimpse of it at different times in the Bible and even in our lives. We see God working for the good of those who love him. We get a glimpse of it. But I think we never see the full tapestry, the full design on the other side. We get a little glimpse of a part of it. And I think even in glory, we won't be able to fully understand the whole design there. It'll take us eternity looking at what God was doing with that, what looked like a chaotic mess of pain and suffering in this world, what God was actually doing on the other side of the tapestry and how he deserves glory and honour and praise for all eternity for what he was doing, which we didn't quite understand at the time, but he called us to trust that he was working it for our glory. And so there's a joy that comes to us as we trust him that's mixed with the sorrowing, a joy that can even come out on top by faith that I've experienced something terrible, but I know God is working it for my good and, of course, the good of his son and for his glory. And so we can sing the words of Longstaff's hymn, Take time to be holy, let him be thy guide. Run not before him, whatever betide, in joy or in sorrow. Still follow the Lord. And looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. Trust that he knows what he's doing. But you must note this morning that such contentments, such joy is only for those who love God. That's that promise in Romans 8.28. What does it say? And we know that in all things, including evil... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is not a promise for evildoers. He's not working for your good if you do not love God. And so what should you do if you think you're a Saul and you're here this morning? If you're tormented by an evil spirit, what should you be doing? You should admit that it's your own fault. It's your own fault. 
Saul. He sinned against God again and again and again. And then what did God do? He sent an evil spirit to torment him. If you've been rejecting God, stop it before he actually sends something far worse to you. Maybe even Satan himself. And you're in a worse condition than you are now. Admit it's your own fault if you are a Saul and recognize that it's only David's family that can help you. Saul, who could help him? David was able to come in and help him. It's only David's family that can help you if you're a Saul here this morning. Speak to a Christian about what's going on in your life. Ask for help. And they will point you to the one of David's family who can only really help, and that is Christ himself, the one who can speak to you words, he can sing to you words that will quiet your soul and bring you to that joy and contentment that he promises for those who come to him. He says, I have spoken, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life in John 6, 63. He is the only one who can give you relief. So stop rejecting God. Come to him. Come to his people and ask them, how can I know Christ Jesus? And come to Christ himself. And Christians, if you're here this morning, are you willing to help those who are troubled by Satan, as David did? David was willing. He knew he was anointed. He'd be the next king. He didn't stay away from Saul and say, I'm not helping that king. No, he went and helped Saul. Are you willing to do so? It grieves me when I see Christians rush from a service like our service on a Sunday morning, abandoning the troubled souls who may have walked in amongst us this morning. It's a great privilege that they can come to us now. I was so, when we had that hard lockdown and we couldn't open our doors on Sunday mornings, I thought, where are the souls going to go to if they want to know how to be helped in their trouble? They can be welcomed in now. Are you going to be here and minister to them? There may be souls amongst us this morning. Are you going to wait around and See if anyone wants to talk to you about the things of God and how they can be helped in their struggle. There may even be Pauls here this morning who are believers but are struggling, that a messenger of Satan has been sent to torment them and they need you to minister to them. You say, what will I do with them? Well, do what Saul, uh, David did. Speak words to them. Sing words to them. What words? Well, the book of Psalms is, of course, the the songbook of the Lord, you can speak the words of Psalms. Memorize a few Psalms that have wonderful promises in, in, in them, that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. You only need to memorize a few verses that could be of great blessing to people who are struggling. And even children, you can do this. David was probably a very young boy at this stage, yet he was used to help someone tormented by an evil spirit. You too can be used to help someone who's troubled. Maybe it's a school friend. No one else will be able to speak to them. You might have an opportunity to talk to them about how they can trust in Jesus Christ and find joy even in the midst of sorrow. Who knows, even a dark thread may be converted to a light thread as you minister to them. And even if they don't convert, as you minister to them, what are you doing? You're establishing the throne of Jesus Christ. That's what David was doing. As he was there, he was ministering to Saul. He was establishing his throne and, of course, the throne of Jesus Christ in due course. Conversions, they're lovely when they happen. But we can't make them happen. We simply minister to people as God has called us to do. And that establishes the throne of Christ, even without conversions. 
But we should hunger for the conversions nonetheless, don't get me wrong. But we should be willing to minister to the souls and the Pauls who may be amongst us, who are troubled by evil. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God who has absolute dominion over evil spirits, evil people, and pain and suffering. We praise you as the God who uses all things to display your glory. We ask that you would forgive us for mistrusting you at times, particularly when we go through pain and suffering. Lord, we, we mistrust and we do not think that there is some purpose in all of this. But Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for such mistrust and help us to trust you even when we don't understand all the reasons why things are the way they are. Help us to trust that you are working all things for your glory. And it's a wonderful glory. And we'll marvel over it for all of eternity, even if we don't see much of it now. And Lord, we thank you for your care and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. And so we give you glory and honour, even as you are so merciful and kind to us in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.